You are now entering the transit zone. And it is now my great honour, on behalf of all of you, to actually introduce to you Zoe Daniel, our community independent candidate for Goldstein. Thank you, Sue. What an incredible moment. It, it really is very emotional and extremely exciting to finally be standing here in front of you. And I am so honoured to be your community-backed independent candidate for Goldstein. say definitely climate change um, and government integrity and honesty. We just feel like there is who do we trust now. So we're very excited to have an independent listening to our voices. I care very much about, you know, my kids' future and it's so wonderful to have Zoe represent our area and she's just so intelligent and a wonderful leader for women and really, really pumped. Well, climate's number one for me. Foreign policy is a number two. Foreign policy especially. If we don't relate with other countries like China in some sort of sensible way, we'll be destroyed. And I'm too much in love with this country to see it destroyed. So I'm desperate for someone to have a more moderate approach. I'm going to steal what they've said and add to it integrity in politics because I'm so ashamed of the scurrilous behaviour of our politicians today. And my third is probably rights of women. We've got to look after women. We're not an underclass anymore. There are so many issues concerning women. There's domestic violence, childcare, Aboriginal women. We've just got to do more for treating women as if we're people, because, you know, we really are. Yes, really just diplomacy and integrity are my major problems with the current government. Saving the world, the environment, is the number one issue, and that's what the parties aren't doing. And Though I voted Liberal all my life, I'm basically totally disillusioned with them on that basis and the integrity issues with government and not having an ICAC at federal level. I mean, those two things alone are sufficient to not vote for the parties. And even though Zoe might not have a huge economic lot of detail, it's secondary, to be honest, you know, at this point in time. From my perspective, it's all about political integrity and accountability. That's completely lacking. And as a lawyer, I find that extremely troubling but also the environment. The key issue for me is I've got to look my kids in the eye and uh, talk to them about the people that uh, are trying to lead our country forward and the issues that matter. And right now, our elected officials aren't doing a good enough job. Simple as that. Yeah, well, I think this seat's been a very, very safe Liberal seat for the longest time, which I think incentivises their own behaviour and our local member. I mean, I haven't heard him say anything of any use or relevance to me in his entire time in the Parliament, right? He's a glib, vacuous... He just doesn't seem to have any connection with the community, right? And so we need someone who knows this community, who cares about this community, and will listen to us and, and try and act in our best interests. And it's a very, that's a very broad thing, but it's a very important thing. Welcome back to The Transit Zone. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which I record and produce these podcasts, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I pay respect to their elders. The actual dates for the next federal election remain uncertain and fluid. 
The Federal Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, recently released a mid-year economic and fiscal outlook document that clearly ploughs the field for the Morrison government's pitch to voters when the campaign proper gets underway. Meanwhile, we're in the phony war phase of that campaign. Despite the increasing threats from the COVID Omicron variant, both Prime Minister Scott Morrison and opposition leader Anthony Albanese have already been visiting certain electorates, feeling out, trialling their key lines and slogans. For the tranche of community-based independent candidates challenging Liberal Party incumbents in ostensibly blue-ribbon seats, this leading period has given them the chance to launch their candidacies and their campaigns and undertake the tough day-to-day tasks of community building and persuasion. These electorates so far are in Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria and South Australia, both urban and regional rural seats. Each one is different, of course, but there are clear patterns common to the concerns and the issues these indies are addressing and building their campaigns around. The four pillars of these issues are climate change, integrity in government and the enactment of a federal integrity commission, gender equity and the very nature of democratic representation itself in our democracy, with an inherent critique of the entrenched party system. In Melbourne, the member for the affluent electorate of Goldstein is Tim Wilson. Former ABC journalist Zoe Daniel is challenging Wilson as a community-based independent. Zoe Daniel, welcome to the Transit Zone. Thank you for having me, Peter. Goldstein is your home, Zoe, as you've made very clear. You are no parachuted in candidate there. The boundaries have been recently adjusted. Introduce us and the Transit Zone audience to this electorate, physically and demographically. Goldstein is a beautiful electorate that, in effect, threads the Bayside suburbs of Melbourne. So from the fringes of Elstonwick through Brighton, Hampton, Sandringham, Blackrock, Beaumaris, and then up into part of Cheltenham and also suburbs like Bentley, Hyatt, Ormond, uh, a bit of McKinnon uh, and Caulfield South, um, and also Gardenvale. It's quite a diverse electorate socioeconomically. There are some very high wealth areas, particularly along the bay, as you would expect, but also a pretty big range of ages and socioeconomic backgrounds once you get away from the beach. So lots of young families, large Chinese community, large Indian community, large Jewish community, especially in Caulfield South and Elstonwick area. And it's a particularly beautiful part of Melbourne. I'm a person who was born in Melbourne in Essendon, so in the northwestern suburbs, and my husband and I had a house in Kensington for many years. But after living overseas in South Africa and then Southeast Asia for a long time, we came back from four years of living in central Bangkok, right in the CBD of that mega city, wanting a place where we could see a horizon, where I could run along the bay, where we could take the the dog and the kids down to the beach. So we chose and we're very blessed to live in Bayside. It is a very affluent electorate. In fact, a number of the electorates that the Indies are running for are quite affluent. We're looking at Warringah, McKellar, Wentworth, just to name a few of them, and some of the rural seats are still pretty affluent. But take us more into the diversity, that age group. You've got some really old people there, no disrespect meant, but 
pre-boomers and you've got some very young families, as you have alluded to, that's a lot of different people to speak to with a lot of different perspectives. It is. I think in terms of wealth, the electorate is something like sixth or seventh in the country. But the other aspect that's interesting is that there's very high education levels in the electorate. So one of the highest in Australia in terms of tertiary education. And you do have, I guess, that really established population of older people, a lot of people who've uh, made their money in business who live in the electorate. But I think you've got a changing demographic. And this is more of a an anecdotal observation and one that possibly reflects us as a family too, that people who might previously have bought housing in the northern suburbs of Melbourne have started looking further afield because housing in the northern suburbs has become particularly expensive as well. So that sort of idea that, oh, I could never afford to live down by the bay has perhaps dissipated a bit because you're paying two, three million dollars plus to live in a place like Northcote, just as an example. So you've you've got got a sort of changing demographic here. And I think too that you do see a lot of young families moving into suburbs like Bentley, particularly in Hyatt, um, and also Ormond and, and McKinnon, where they can be within striking distance of the beach in housing that's a, a little bit more affordable. But then the, there's also, also that cultural diversity uh, factor as well. So I think politically what's interesting is that this is a safe Liberal seat and has been since it, it was created in 1984. But I think the demographic is perhaps shifting in a, in a way that even the major parties don't quite have a handle on currently. Describe the process whereby you became a Voices of Independent Candidate in Goldstein. I was approached by a friend of mine who had been asked, did she know anyone who might be a good candidate? And she said, well, yes, actually, I know the perfect person. Um, and then I had some preliminary discussions with Voices of Goldstein community group. Initially, I was quite reticent to run, largely for family reasons. I've been a foreign correspondent for the best part of the last 15 years. I've spent a lot of time away from my husband, away from my two children. And now being home, I've been really enjoying life in Goldstein and started my own business and enjoying spending a bit more time with the kids. But the the idea just kind of didn't go away. Um, I kept thinking about it. Voices of Goldstein came back to me several times and in, eventually I agreed to go through an interview process to see if it was good fit. I, I think in the end, the basic pillars of Voices of Goldstein and the policy areas that the community group was really keen to try to make a difference on, so particularly forward-thinking climate policy, more transparent economic policy, integrity and equality for women, were areas that really resonated with me and are very much aligned with my own concerns. And then I think there's a bigger um, issue around in accountability generally and a loss of trust in politics and leadership that's been concerning me for some time, especially having covered Donald Trump for four years. So all of those things were in the mix. And then in the end, my children have been very positive about this. They're very concerned about climate policy and climate change and also the equality piece. So they were very keen for me to step in. It sounds like those approaches from Goldstein 
did fall on fertile ground, but was there a moment where you really had to go into yourself and really do the checklist and make sure that you really, really wanted to do this? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I never would have run for one of the major parties. I'm just not a party political person. It's not something that would ever have been on my radar. And I feel that having been an objective journalist so long and prided myself in that, that that would have really compromised me to to do that and I I just I wouldn't have been able to to choose um, to do that so that was never going to be something that I chose to do but when the idea of being an independent was put forward I thought well there's real momentum behind this movement and there might actually be an opportunity to get in and try and bring about some progress from the inside but I really did spend a good couple of months analysing would I be able to cope with the demands, Uh, would I be able to cope with being away a lot, Um, did I have the the skills needed to do the job and I think that actually going through that process is appropriate because it is a a big commitment and it it is something that requires very much an all or nothing focus, I think. Zoe, you've been a journalist most of your adult working life. I remember back in the day, you and I were just a few desks apart Mm -hmm. at the Melbourne ABC. So I saw you in your younger journalist life. That skill set, as you well know, is observing, reporting, interpreting, analysing, storytelling. You've got a book out about your storytelling, essentially an objective process with your ostensible loyalties to your citizen audience. Now, You've stepped across that gulf to become a political player. It's essentially about you as a candidate, a subjective project. How are you finding that switch, that transition? Being in a position where I actively express my views on things is definitely a big leap. I think particularly as an ABC journalist where we try to be very even-handed and walk a middle line and look at things through all sides of of a prism without judging it does feel very different to be in a position where I'm actively putting my views forward. Uh, But that said, I think those views are quite nuanced and well-formed because of the background that I have. Obviously, my worldview is very broad, having worked across Africa, Asia and the Americas, as well as Australia and the Pacific. I can bring direct personal experiences to a lot of the policy areas that we're grappling with, having covered, for example, several large-scale natural disasters that were climate-related, having travelled to the Arctic, having met with refugees in refugee camps and, and also those who are stranded in countries trying to find somewhere to call a home. Um, having covered Wall Street, having been in the Oval Office, having interviewed presidents and prime ministers from from all across the world, and also having had to synthesise really complicated foreign policy information at times, having to read politics, having to try to understand the Trump phenomenon. All those things, you know, make me who I am uh, and feed into the, the capacity that I have for, for this role. So much as stepping across that divide, as you suggest, Peter, is a, was a big leap, at the same time, I think there are some really obvious synergies in the two roles. 
So your background as a journalist, as you've just described it to us, has given you a close-up view of both politics and also more broadly the dynamics of everyday life, of people in the Midwest of the United States who do a lot of trips to speak to just ordinary citizens, tragic events, particularly in Southeast Asia and in Africa, inequalities and injustices, especially your time as a foreign correspondent in the United States, as you mentioned, during the Trump era. What an extraordinary time to be there. But I'm interested in the nitty gritty of how you now, and you're in the middle of it, how you now translate and transfer that background with all the skill sets that you've described into being an effective and persuasive political candidate here in Australia. Is there also a downside? You've got great presentation skills. You're a very smooth presenter, very good public speaker. Most of the other indie candidates are much more nervous. They're all neophytes at that side of things. Is there also a danger that you'll be seen as part of the politico-journalist class and a bit too slick? Maybe. Uh, Look, I I think that I would expect to be treated a little differently by the media, for example. The the expectations of me will be higher, and that's perfectly understandable. I've been doing this uh, sort of role of speaking publicly in a different way for almost three decades and so, therefore, perhaps the questions will be a little bit harder. Um, and, and again, perhaps the criticism will be a little bit sharper when it comes. But that's okay. Um, I, I think the way that I'll translate what I've done and the way that I should best translate it is by using the listening skills. And I think one of the things that's really missing in not only modern Australian politics but politics across the world is that the loss of an ability to actually engage with communities genuinely, to try to understand people's hopes and and dreams and aspirations and disappointments. And this is one thing that really struck me, especially covering the Trump administration, just how much loss of hope there's been in the United States and just how little trust in leadership there is and just the fact that people feel in terms of their prosperity that their children's lives will be less prosperous than theirs that their their children will have not as good a life as they have had so that sense of grasping for a leader in that case uh, who manifested in in Trump for someone who could provide something different something fresh But again, I think what I've learned from talking to people in that context and all sorts of different contexts across the world is that a lot of it's about listening and and not judgmentally and talking to people who have very different views than my own and, and trying to understand how things will affect people differently to the way that they affect me. And then in this context, that that's then to do with, okay, how do we try to build those things into policy? How do we give those people a voice from the crossbench? How do we um, roll in those concerns and issues when a piece of legislation or policy is presented by one or other of the the major parties? How do we make sure those views are considered? Um, And how do we avoid or try to start to alleviate that sense of disengagement with politics and a sense of people uh, feeling unrepresented. So this is this is a really positive part of that, um, but the movement that we're building. 
to actually try to create something different, something new, and something optimistic. As you know all too well, Zoe, because you've observed it over and over again, politics has a way of inducing a pretty profound cynicism in the players, within politicians. Do you recognise that capacity in yourself to become cynical? How are you and your team going to avoid becoming cynical during the process, during the campaign and beyond? Hmm. Well, I, I agree that, you know, potentially there's a risk of that. But one thing I would say, for example, people used to always ask me in regard to being a correspondent and with all of the trauma that I've endured with the various things that I've had to cover over time, whether that made me a harder person, whether I sort of had to build a shield around myself. And I actually think it's made me a much softer person. Uh, I think in some ways I feel things more deeply than I previously did. It's but Is it a cumulative effect or just sharpened empathy, if you like, having been in so many challenging situations and seen people having to, to rise to meet them? And, and therefore... I would like to think that the same applies when it comes to building that cynical layer. I don't feel like I'm so prone to that because I'm aware of it. I'm aware of the risk of becoming cynical. I'm I'm aware of the risk of becoming part of a, a sort of political machine because I've been around it for so long as an observer. So I go into it with eyes wide open around the, its potential to change me and also to be manipulated by that and especially again having covered Donald Trump and and observed the sort of information manipulation that has gone on during and since the the Trump era so I, I like to think that those things are a little bit protective. Zoe, do you see clear connections between the so-called post-truth shape-shifting propaganda approach of Trump and what many do see as a quite similar approach by PM Scott Morrison? The lies, the tricksy slogans, the sly messaging to target segments of the electorate. Do you see a clear connection, a clear similarity? Look, I think what we're seeing, and it's not only in Australia, is a rise of populism. And much of it is taken from the Trump playbook. And unfortunately, what that means is that a policy is framed around how it will play with the electorate rather than how it will actually affect people. So that's the first thing. And then the second aspect is the 24-hour news cycle and the impact that that has on the way that our politicians conduct their messaging When previously, even 20 or 30 years ago, if a minister stepped out of line, for example, they would have been sacked or forced to resign for quite minor infractions at times. Whereas those boundaries have really shifted to now because, in part, I think the 24-hour news cycle is so intense that if people who've made an error just stick, the news cycle tends to move on and it provides them with with some cover often for larger infractions. And then what you get is that very Trumpian tactic of gaslighting, um, in effect, manipulating people to the extent that things that they know happen start to to become very fuzzy and they wonder if they actually happened at all because of the way that they're framed by our leaders. 
but also the use of the term fake news as cover for inconvenient truths. And all of these things just mean that we're not being treated with respect by our leaders because they're manipulating our perspective on things for their own gain. And I think that's really toxic. We've just recorded the Transit Zone end of year wrap, just discussing COVID, obviously, and politics, obviously. And Margot Kingston, my fellow podcaster, was reflecting on her time in the Canberra Press Gallery in the 80s and the 90s and pointing out that then if a Prime Minister lied, they obviously fiddled under pressure with the truth a little bit. If a Prime Minister just plain out lied on a big issue especially, but even on smaller issues, they'd be looking at resignation eventually. But now she pointed out that we're in a totally different media space in terms of Australian politics and that there are constant lies now and constant warping of the truth. How do you deal with that as now a candidate yourself and you're going to be dealing with the media? That's the environment you'll find yourself in with stuff flying at you from all directions. The onslaught is yet to begin for you. So... How do you view that new situation, not so new, but newer situation in Australia? How are you going to deal with all that? Well, I think it's it's that thing of the more often you say something, the more it becomes true or the more likely people are going to believe it. And that's really unfortunate. And that's a, a very Trumpian thing as well. Uh, I think also that even the media, and obviously I've been part of the media for a long time, has become quite desensitised to this and perhaps increasingly allows things to kind of go through to the keeper without calling them out, especially so-called minor issues. But over time, those things build up into a pattern of behaviour. So I think actually... One thing that's encouraging is that the public's becoming increasingly wise to this and and there is an appetite for that kind of behaviour to be called out as it happens and, and not tolerated and that we need to pull those boundaries that have shifted back to, to where they, they should be. So I think in part for someone like me, it's about fact-checking and not being afraid to call out those things and also one thing that's becoming apparent to me just talking to people in the electorate over the last few weeks when I talk about the appetite for those things being called out that the top issue that comes up or the sort of umbrella issue or word is accountability people are really fed up with feeling like they're they're being manipulated policy not being delivered on uh, untruths being perpetrated as facts, the use of fake news as cover for inconvenient truths and all those sorts of things. So as an independent who comes to a campaign on an integrity platform, partly, that, that also provides an opportunity to speak to those issues because it's apparent to me that the community really wants people to be speaking up about this more. Zali Stegel, the independent MP for Warringah, something of a pathfinder in the indie movement, obviously, Warringah in Sydney, describes herself as a social progressive and a fiscal conservative, a formulation we've found most of the indies we've interviewed here on the Transit Zone use as well. How do you describe yourself, Zoe? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's the same for me. Um, I certainly have you know very strong views about 
safeguarding our prosperity. And I actually think that if you speak to climate policy specifically, which has been weaponised as a moral issue in this country for more than a decade and remains that, but is all increasingly becoming an urgent economic problem. And my concern as someone who is a fiscal conservative is that particularly right now, our government, which purports to be a very strong economic manager, is not addressing that particular issue strongly enough which in a place like Goldstein where people um, have worked very hard to get to where where they've got, and um, as has everyone in every electorate in Australia, but people here I think really um, feel their privilege in that sense and they they understand that it's it's not permanent if we don't address it with good policy. So uh, on the social progressive side, I mean, I think it's, apparent from the kind of background that I have that I would have a a fairly wide perspective and view on most social issues because of the sort of experiences that I've had. You voted for the Liberal Party incumbent in Goldstein, Tim Wilson, at the 2016 election, but for the Labor candidate at the 2019 election, what issues or policies or behaviours by Tim Wilson or the Coalition more broadly inform that decision to switch your vote? It was... Partly, very strongly, climate policy related. My vote, and I'm a swinging voter, I've always been a swinging voter, so it certainly wasn't the first time that I'd voted for the Liberal Party. But in 2016, Malcolm Turnbull was the candidate for Prime Minister, and Malcolm Turnbull someone that I know, who I've had a lot of contact with through my work over time. And obviously he came in with a forward-thinking climate policy and an economic policy to to go with that. Unfortunately, as has been the case with many prime ministers in recent history in Australia, he was then white-anted out of office or incapable of actually delivering on what he promised. So it was a a simple case of a reaction against that behaviour in 2019, but also a prime ministerial candidate in Scott Morrison who has not shown any commitment to grappling with this issue of climate. And I think the record shows as we head into another election that there's been very little progress on not only that issue but several things that the Morrison government promised to do ahead of the 2019 election, including putting a Federal Integrity Commission in place and has not delivered on. As I mentioned in my introduction, the voices of candidates seem to have four pillars of issues or policies that are the bedrock of their campaigns. Climate change, you mentioned integrity, integrity and government and a federal ICAC, gender equity and the very nature of democratic representation itself. You mentioned accountability, which is part of that, of course. Starting with climate change, you've made it clear how concerning it is as a headline campaign issue. But now let's go into detail. What is your actual map to achieving lower emissions and our transition to a low carbon economy in a timely way? And the sense of urgency is now very strong. How do we get there? Mm. Well, at a minimum, we should be heading for 50% reduction emissions target by 2030 and then enforceable targets to achieving net zero by 2050 but preferably earlier. 
I think there's a lot to be said for not only diverting subsidies from the fossil fuel industry into renewable industries, and these are the sorts of things that the likes of Mike Cannon-Brooks and Twiggy Forrest have been talking about, very smart business people, to really maximise the scope in this country around wind, solar, renewable hydrogen, the export industries that those things can support, research and development, innovation and job creation around all of those things. I think the other piece is just pulling apart who's donating to our political parties and having more transparency around that and just how that is affecting the implementation or development of particular policies. I'm not sure that the vast majority of Australians understand, for example, just how much money from the fossil fuel industry is going into political donations. So the question then is, well, why is our climate policy so stalled? Uh, well, a lot of things come back to money, as you know. So that's another uh, piece of that too. But even last year, the government put roughly $10 billion into fossil fuel subsidies. That needs to be diverted into renewables. There are the simple things around no new gas projects, no new coal projects. The, the energy needs to go elsewhere. And big institutional investors already understand this. The community understands that local government, state government understands that everyone else is running far ahead of the federal government on these things. My concern is that institutional investors, for example, who really want to put money into these sorts of industries can't do it because they don't have policy certainty. So if we set a realistic, gettable target for 2030 and very specific enforceable targets out to 2050, but as I said earlier, potentially, um, that gives scope for those large investors to actually put money into the kinds of projects that I'm talking about. And there, there are many sort of no-brainer pieces to this, but renewable energy, for example, we know is 65, roughly 65% cheaper than energy from coal-fired power stations. We know those power stations are going to become stranded ass assets. We should not be continuing to uh, subsidise industries that are going to fail over time and also the people in those communities deserve and want structured policy to enable them to make this transformation. Coal workers in the Latrobe Valley in Victoria, for example, have been polled and I think three quarters of them support more investment being put into renewable energy. They want a future for themselves and, and their children. So we just we have to start being just sensible about this and and use our common sense and also embrace it optimistically for the opportunity that it can be. It, it doesn't say, take uh, much looking around at the numbers to see what sort of job creation we could have, what sort of increased our GDP that we could have simply as a result of putting our energy into renewables versus not doing it. Um, so there's all sorts of things, electric vehicles, obviously. You see other countries transitioning their entire government fleets and having quite short targets. I think the UK is, uh, by 2030, transitioning its fleet. So these are the sorts of things that, that we should be doing. And we, can, we should be and we can be a leader 
in this, not a laggard as we are currently. Is there not, though, a fundamental contradiction here that ultimately we're all going to have to face the nature of capitalism itself, extractive and manufacturing industries, the consumption of the environment, the exploitation of labour? Is there not a circle to be squared here, Zoe? How can business and market forces, the centrality of the profit motive, alone solve the climate change existential challenge, in your view? Well, I don't think it does happen with market forces alone. I think it happens with government facilitation to support those market forces. I think over time, the market may well take care of it, but it will be too slow. We, our big issue at the moment is that we've been dithering around so much um, on the politics of the matter without actually dealing with the fundamentals of what needs doing. And this, I think, is central to one of my reasons for running as an independent. The next three years are going to be absolutely critical. And we just need to get in, create incentivising policy, uh, support structures, um, clear boundaries around targets and, and those sorts of things to enable that business investment. And you start to see... You know, the climate economists, economists talk about the positive feedback loop. Once things start to scale, they scale further and they scale further. And at that point, obviously, government can start pulling back from the sorts of supports that I'm talking about because it, it will become self-supporting. But just like anything, when you're trying to ramp it from zero, you have to put investment in to get it up and running. And so that's, in my mind where we're at. You know the old saying, the existence of billionaires is a system failure. Do you have any truck with that? Well, look, it is what it is. Uh, This is where we are. I mean, it's it's kind of like one of the challenges of our time, isn't it? Wealth inequality. But but at the end of the day, uh, when it comes to the behaviour of the billionaires in this mix, they will go and they will put their money where the smart money is and where the smart business is. And you and we need to encourage that. And that will actually help all of us in the longer run. So what we need to do is actually support them in, the, in that process and give them the structure to do it. What are your views and approaches, I guess, on other basic environmental issues? Loss of habitat and native species, that's very critical in Australia. Land clearing has been one of the big culprits there, as you well know. Air and water pollution and the real biggie that doesn't get enough attention, in my view, plastic pollution. That ties back into capitalism and packaging and and segmenting markets and creating goods that are all wrapped in plastic or made from plastic. So what are your views on those other pressing environmental issues? Yeah, and we want to have... Uh, a continuing incredible and unique environment for our children and, and ourselves and the uh, the future of the planet generally. But as someone who's lived out of Australia for so long, I'm someone who really values the Australian environment. I think land clearing, obviously the minimal land clearing should should be taking place at this point. But I think the other thing that's happening, for example, is that some of the policies that have been put in place around um, carbon mitigation, for example, is based on farmers not clearing their land, for example. But a lot of that's actually based around land that was never going to be cleared. So it's a it's a bit of a, 
a false model, if you like. So in terms of policy makings, there are some things like that that can be tidied up in, in terms of supporting the kind of process that we're talking about. Uh, I think that Australians do really value their natural environment. I think we're on very safe ground here when we say that pe people want um, their natural environment protected. But, but the other thing is that increasingly we will start seeing more and more impact on our natural environment from climate change if we don't speed up these responses. I mean, one example, um, I'm involved in a, a surf lifesaving club down on the Great Ocean Road in Victoria. The forecast on sea level rise has been based around numbers coming in at around 2040 in terms of the physical location of the surf club and whether it would be at risk from, from rising seas. I, as part of the committee of the surf club, have spent this entire year negotiating with various state government authorities due to a series of king tides that have caused such serious erosion that the surf club has been damaged um, quite severely in 2021. So almost 20 years earlier than the forecast models um, suggested. And to me, you know, that's just a really good physical example of the sort of impacts that people will start seeing if we don't start taking action on these kinds of things. But Zoe, of course, we are one of the most urbanised of societies. Most of us huddle around the southeast coast. That's where most of us are in the capital cities. It's a huge percentage of us. When we talk about the Great Barrier Reef, when we talk about the Murray River, when we talk about the deserts, etc., the rest of the continent where species are going extinct really quickly, like the Mala marsupial, how do you connect the average citizen's imagination to the reality, to the actuality of that decline? Personally, I'm wondering if we should be doing any more land clearing. I've driven around virtually all of Australia a number of times now on photographic expeditions. There's virtually no part of Australia that's untouched by pastoralism, mining and other human activities. We imagine the great outback. It's not there anymore. The pristine outback, it's gone. So it's quite critical. How do you connect a very urbanised society to the necessary strategies and tactics to remediate that? Mm. Well, I do wonder whether we, we need to be reframing the conversation a bit. And I, I feel that perhaps it comes back to the combative nature of our politics too, that it it's always sort of one against the other rather than this affects all of us in various ways. So to try to better encourage understanding of our different situations. For example, um, in regard to what's happening here in Goldstein with the, our independent movement. It was framed, I think, by the Prime Minister uh, last week or the independent movements were framed by the Prime Minister as urban independence trying to dictate policy for the people of Queensland. That's not a direct quote, but something along those lines. And I actually, I think that's really destructive to to create a situation where it's, me sitting here in suburban Melbourne against my husband's family who live near Roma, you know, on a property in Queensland. It, it, we all have interlinking experiences in this country. We have interlinking social and family networks. We have, um, you know, the blessing in non-COVID times of being able to travel and experience the diversity of, of environments. So I, I don't think... I think we need to get away from that us versus them 
kind of attitude and it's partly due to our politics and there are other ways of talking about these issues and connecting our different experiences so that people understand that the way climate might affect them is different to the way that it's going to affect the farmer on the land, for example, or the person who runs the dive company on the reef or the Indigenous community in northern WA or the community down at Wye River on the Great Ocean Road that I'm talking about or how, you know, lower economic growth affects small business here in Bayside, Melbourne, where I'm sitting. All of those experiences are connected. They're not They're not separate. So it's not kind of an easy solution, is it, when we live in this sort of combative environment? But conversations count for a lot. And I think, as I said before, this is one of the things that I can bring, having taught myself to look at things through separate sides of a prism and not make assumptions and to try to consider how it will affect people other than me who are in different situations. And, you know, perhaps to therefore take a more nuanced approach to policy making. You're listening to another Transit Zone podcast. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne. Our guest, the independent candidate for the Melbourne seat of Goldstein in the looming federal election, Zoe Daniel. The Indi Independent, Helen Haynes, has forged with many other contributions, as you know, a private member's bill for an Australian Federal Integrity Commission that certainly stands in stark contrast to what the Morrison government is apparently proposing. Do you see her bill as the key vehicle for enacting a federal ICAC? Yeah, I mean, Helen's bill has um, great support and I've had several briefings about integrity and various potential integrity commission models i think the those who are really um deeply in the weeds of this issue and those who have for example legal backgrounds who've looked closely at her bill are strongly in favor of it um my position is that there's an integrity an integrity commission has to be more about corruption more than about corruption, that it has to also look at those issues of political donations that I was talking about and also truth in political advertising. So whatever is legislated needs to include those things under that umbrella. I I think the issue with the government's bill is that it's just too narrowly framed and specifically the, the main issue is the suspicion of criminality is the only way to trigger an investigation where isn't it obvious that often it's investigations that would uncover criminality. So it's, it's backwards. If you can't even have an investigation based on suspicion, then you're never going to find out what's actually going on. So th- there are several issues with the government's bill um, Experts suggest that it potentially make the situation worse rather than better, that it could actually foster corruption. So something's not better than nothing in this regard and and we need to get it right. And I also think that the the whole suggestion of uh, 
independent commissions against corruption overstepping or being kangaroo courts and all that sorts of things. Um, I, well, I don't think that's right because the processes that these commissions go through before they bring something to public hearings are very nuanced and deep. So there's nothing flippant about it. But I, I think there's also a prevailing view among the experts that are looking at this issue that there are some checks and balances that could, could be put in place and also a clearinghouse that could be put in place for people who are potentially implicated in investigations and then have their names cleared in various ways to, to offset that reputational damage issue that seems to be the major sticking point in terms of moving this forward. Zoe, the implacable calculus to win a blue ribbon seat such as Goldstein from Tim Wilson is to lower his primary vote to at least 45%. He achieved a primary vote of about 52% at the 2019 election to garner a significant proportion of Labor and Greens votes. Definitely come in second. You have no other choice but to come in second behind Wilson and then have a solid preference flow to you. Now, how are you going about achieving that by your campaign, in the way you communicate and persuade all the different stripes within your electorate. How are you going about that? It's a pretty big hill to climb, isn't it? It is. It, it's a big task. And I think there's there's a sort of bigger picture piece of that, which is obviously having only launched, I think it was three and a half or four weeks ago, a lot of what we've been doing or I've been doing is awareness raising. So a lot of these kinds of chats, um, some mainstream media, getting out on the street, talking to people in, in shopping centres and around the, the streets of Goldstein, um, connecting with people in various ways through uh, podcasts that we're doing, through, through a newsletter, um, being involved in community events and just doing a lot of direct engagement with people in the electorate. And then we've also already, we've held a couple of events where people can come along and have direct conversations with me as well as actually meeting people at sort of boots on the ground with the volunteers, which I've been doing as well. There will be, particularly after the holidays, so in February we, we have several larger scale events planned where, again, the whole basis of a community campaign is to spend a lot of time with people and po possibly for me to do less talking and more listening to try to really understand what people's issues are, what they would like to see taken forward into the parliament and just how we can do that. Um, the other big piece that we're working on, obviously, is just putting some more meat on some of these policy bones and to do some good analysis as you, when we talk about the Integrity Commission, for example, as I said, I've had several meetings already with people in different um, positions of expertise just to try to understand you know, what's on the table from the government, what's on the table from Helen Haynes, what's being done elsewhere, what what the strengths and weaknesses are to, to really get a good perspective on what's going to work best. So that's happening as well. And then um, I think the, the other thing is obviously in terms of how do you win, just trying to do some really good analysis of how people have voted in federal and state elections in this area over time, um, taking a look at those patterns, as all major parties will do, um, just to try to get a sense of where the swing 
might come. And we know that there was a swing against the LNP at the last federal election. There was also a swing in the last state election in the seat of Brighton, for example, a substantial swing. So there, there's room to move there. And we have done some polling, well, Climate 200 did some polling before I was announced as a candidate, which suggested that a good independent would attract the substantial portion of the primary vote. In fact, that polling showed that uh, a, a good independent would be a dead heat with a Liberal candidate in, in this electorate. And that was before I was announced as, as the candidate. So, it, yes, it's a safe seat, but I actually, especially as I've been out meeting people a lot and having lots of conversations and lots of reaction on social media and lots of phone calls and emails and such over the last few weeks, I'm really optimistic that we have a good shot at winning. I know I'm in a long queue of people asking you this next question, but it's an essential question, and I know you've been thinking about it a lot and will continue to think about it a lot. The prospect of a hung parliament after this election is distinctly feasible. It could be akin to the Gillard-Abbott situation or some other difficult scenario. An electorate such as Goldstein would likely prefer you as an independent, as their independent, in a bargaining negotiating scenario to give confidence and supply to the Morrison coalition government. Is that how you see it, Zoe? Well, no. Uh, look, obviously I'm undecided and I wouldn't make a decision about who I might support in a hypothetical hung parliament situation that could be six months away. I, I think... At the end of the day, it's going to be, if we got to that, about who can deliver on the sorts of policy areas that we've been talking about. The platform or the pillars that I'm running on are very clear. There's no secrecy around what the priorities are. And those priorities are based on the views that I've been talking to people in the electorate uh, about and the views that they have. Um, so particularly climate policy, but also the equality and integrity aspects. So there's, you know, there's no one size fits all or sort of prefabricated decision on that. It has to be about having the conversations at the time, considering the circumstances at the time. Anything could happen in the next four to six months. Can you envisage a situation, and I know we're in hypothetical ground, but this is sort of like gaming the various situations, perhaps going with the Morrison government, but for confidence and supply because of all the exigencies bearing in on you, but then working with the parliament and with Labor and the Greens to bring about the climate change, the federal ICAC and other reforms that you want to see. In other words, being a very strong crossbench. Interesting as part of that equation, by the way, you have a more ambitious 2030 emissions aim and target than does Labor, which is running at 43%. So throw that into the mix as well. You're more ambitious than the Labor Party when you come to negotiate with them, perhaps, to uh, support them in confidence and supply. So it's going to be a very interesting period, Zoe. So how are you playing out those scenarios with your team in your mind? Yeah, I mean, so maybe, I mean, maybe it's, there's a negotiation to be had with the, the LNP. Maybe there's a, a the same conversation to be had with the ALP and then it comes down to well the nuances of those positions and and how how is it going to be executed and where where's the trust around whether it will be executed so all of those things have to come into that conversation I mean I, I know 
everyone wants an answer to this question. And there's, you know, there's a little undercurrent in the mainstream media that independents like me have a responsibility to tell the Australian public which way we would vote if or who would we, we would support in this situation. But I actually think it's the reverse. I think we have a responsibility to be really considered and, and take the time to consider the situation on the day, what's on the table, how, how might that play out, um, what, what's going to be implemented by whichever party, you know, is, is there. Um, so I, I think the expectation that you would state months out from an election who you might support when you haven't even seen how the situation looks at the time is is just ridiculous. And and I actually don't think the average voter would expect that. Margot Kingston reminded us just how badly punished both Conservatives were who went with Labor in that particular situation. They were punished by their Conservative electorates, weren't they? Even though they got quite a lot of benefit from the arrangement, they would resent it deeply that they went with Labor. You're in a very blue ribbon seat. Is that part of the equation for you as well, to be factored in? Well, you know, I'd like to say um, that my sort of default position is no deals, no horse trading. And that's, that is my default position when it comes to individual policy. I understand that um, supply and confidence is a, a different situation that would, would have to be considered differently. I mean, you know, not to say that this is something that I would do, but some might say, well, if it comes down to one person deciding who's running the country, maybe we should just go back and have another election, you know. is Should the people of Goldstein or Warringah or McKellar or whoever be holding the, the sort of decision for all of Australia? So, but again, it's all hypothetical, Peter. And, and the other thing is that, look, if I sound perhaps simplistic, but even in that situation, I'm still going to be led by the feedback that I'm getting from people in in the electorate. It's not sort of a a model whereby here I am months out from the election that I've already decided this is what I would do. I mean, I'm just in a consultation phase trying to engage with the community, having launched four weeks ago. So, you know, that's another thing to tap the sentiment of the community about. What what would be their preference if it came to the crunch? Which way would they jump? So there's a lot of water under the bridge um, on that one. During the election campaign, you know that we'll see a circus of confected photo ops, video ops, with endless cosplay, high-vis, hard hats, hairnets with white coats, Shopping malls, kindies, etc. I've never understood why politicians go and talk to kiddies on low stools, but anyway, they do. And the media will supinely rock up to record, partly art direct sometimes, as we saw with the Noki making and Scott Morrison recently, and disseminate these partisan performances. How do you view those events intrinsically? It's become part of our political culture to do them. The magical mystery tours on the bus with the media on board. And will you as an independent aim to follow a different campaigning path? Look, I will be just running my own race. So we've got all sorts of plans for events, as I said, and um, we'll be, and the main priority above everything is direct 
as direct as possible community engagement and consultation and actual conversations. And they will be large scale, small scale, could be a kitchen table conversation, could be a coffee with one person, could be a, you know, a big ideas summit. We've got all sorts of things planned. Um, media coverage, sure. I mean, if there's interest from the media, then there'll be media. But, uh, you know, I think that elections, um, and we, you know, we're always going to be behind the major parties uh, as our campaign as an independent candidate because they innately will get more coverage than we do in terms of the mainstream media. But I, I think we shouldn't be um, led or driven by that. We we just have to take our own line, remain true to to what we're trying to do, connect with people, be real honest, genuine, and it will come down to how many people I can meet <laughs> between now and Election Day. So that's the mission. The Labor-Green front slam from the Coalition and from your own opponent, the Liberal Party opponent, is just a harbinger of what's to come. Are you and your team ready for the onslaught? There are going to be a lot of falsehoods. Do you chase every rabbit down every rabbit hole with the falsehoods? How are you going to deal with the onslaught? Uh, it's really annoying, um, but it's like not something that it, it, I find particularly hurtful. It's just, I, I think it's more just a broader frustration with the nature of politics being so toxic and nasty and that apparently by standing up and speaking your mind and being passionate about trying to be involved in and change something, you, you become a fair game for lies and falsehoods and information manipulation. But I I plan to just stay above all of that. It's there's there's nothing to be gained um, for for me, uh, for my family, for us as a campaign to buy into any of that. Um, of course where if there's outright lies spoken, then I will provide clarity on why they are not true. Uh, but I, I certainly don't plan to uh, go low in in that way. It's just not my style anyway. Zoe, thank you for spending some time with us in the transit zone and hearty good luck to you and your family as you face the rigours of this campaign ahead. Thank you very much. Thank you, Peter. Our guest in the transit zone this time, former ABC journalist and now an independent candidate for the Melbourne electorate of Goldstein, held by Tim Wilson, Zoe Daniel. There's a link to Zoe's campaign website in the on-screen text for this podcast. If you'd like to email us here at the Transit Zone, here is our email address, transitzonepod at gmail.com. We always welcome your comments, your questions, your ideas for new podcast episodes. Transitzonepod at gmail.com. I'm Peter Clark in Melbourne, Australia. Thanks for listening. And please join us again soon, right here in the Transit Zone. You are now leaving the transit zone.